Hello, and welcome to What is Innovation? The podcast that explores the reality of a word that is in danger of losing its meaning altogether. This podcast is produced by Outlast Consulting, LLC, a boutique consultancy that helps companies use innovation principles to solve their toughest business problems. I'm your host, Jared Simmons, and I'm so excited to have Galen Bingham. Galen Bingham is the founder of Kiln Global Coaching and Consulting. Known as the leadership strategist, Galen is a leadership trainer, retreat facilitator, and certified executive coach who offers insight from 30 years of operating experience with Fortune 500 companies like Kraft Foods, Imperial Sugar, and the Coca-Cola Company. He also has six years of experience as a franchise owner of Minchie's Frozen Yogurt. He is consistently sought out to advise or serve on premier nonprofit boards, providing guidance on governance, board development, CEO selection, and organizational leadership. He has coached or consulted with over 875 senior executives, CEOs, and nonprofit leaders across seven countries. Galen holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Business Administration from Southern Nazarene University, an MBA from Rice University, and certification in Inquiry-Based Leadership from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He is a best-selling author of Impact, a Leadership Fable, Your Power to Make a Lasting Difference, and the host of the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership podcast. He is husband to Monique for 26 years and father to Landis, who is a freshman biochemistry major at Spelman College. Galen, welcome to the show, my friend. I am so excited about this conversation. I just really appreciate you making the time to talk, and and I can't wait to dive in. Yeah, boy, I tell you, I, I always look forward to any conversation that you and I have because we have a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, we touch on a lot of common areas, and somehow I end up smarter at the end of that conversation than I was at the beginning of that conversation. So I thank you for that. Uh, well, I much appreciate it. You're probably listening to yourself. That's what does that. <laughs> so why don't we dive right in? I know we're going to go all, all over the map on this one, which I'm excited about. But, but let's just dive right in. Uh, what is, in your mind, innovation? I think innovation is creative or synthetic imagination to enhance value. Mm. Creative or synthetic. Tell me about that. Creative or synthetic. We're going to take it piece by piece. Yeah. So break that down for me. Creative yeah. or synthetic imagination. I like, I like that. So in my mind, creative imagination is broken down into two types. Mm -hmm. There's either creative imagination, which is something coming totally out of nowhere. You have no idea where it came from. Mm. You were just inspired. You had a dream and this, this thing won't leave you alone. Whereas synthetic imagination is taking things that have been before and using them in a different way or putting things together that weren't together before or taking things apart that were always together, mm -hmm. but you're, you're reconfiguring things that have already existed and you're doing it in a different way. And both of those are important. Most people, specifically in corporate America, mm -hmm. which is my background, we get really, really good at using synthetic imagination. Mm -hmm. and creative imagination, we usually don't use it a whole lot. And when we do use it, we usually get called crazy. <laughs> and yeah. no one really wants to invest in your creative, imaginative idea because we can't find five other companies that have done something similar before. Right, right. It sounds like it might be harder 
tell me if this if I'm going down the right path, it might be harder for people to see the value in the near term, to see the value on the creative imagination versus the synthetic has more of a known kind of path to here's how you create value. Here's how you put this together. Yeah, I think that it has a lot to do with risk reward. Mm. And there's a lot more risk associated with creative imagination mm -hmm. because you want to see evidence that this thing is going to work. And clearly you can't be the smartest person in the world. So there has to be someone else who's thought of this. Therefore, show me those people. Show me what they've made for, from it, especially if you're asking me to invest in it. Show me the return on investment that they've made from this idea. And that's easier to do with synthetic imagination. Creative imagination is more of, this just seems like a good idea. My heart is telling me this is what we should be doing. And that's really hard to sell upstream. Definitely. I think another part of that, I mean, the risk reward element of that, I think you're spot on in how that plays out differently for creative versus synthetic. I also think that the, you know, in this corporate world that you and I both professionally grew up in, the quarterly cycle imposed by Wall Street does not play nicely with creative imagination. Mm, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, I think the pressures of Wall Street puts a lot of undue stress on any type of innovation. Mm. I think it causes leaders to make decisions that they would not ordinarily make. You know, I, I used to talk a lot about how business in, is run in Eastern civilizations versus in the West, you know, whereas in the West, you know, everything is quarterly, maybe annually. Right. And if you really want to demonstrate your ability to think long-term, you're going to show them a three-year plan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Whereas in Eastern civilizations and Eastern business, it's about the 100-year business plan. Mm. It's about the generational direction that we want this organization to take. It's about how will this business idea impact society? And when you hear of businesses doing that here in the United States, you, you call them mavericks right. because that's just so foreign to anything that is ever talked about in the mainstream. Right. Yeah. What do you think drives that in terms of the difference in the time horizons? You know, Eastern civilizations are a lot older than America. I mean, America as a country is only a couple hundred years old. So if you're thinking about a hundred years, that's, that's half as long as the country has been around. Do you think that plays a role in it? I think the age of the civilization plays a big role in it. It's kind of hard for me to think back 30 years ago. Right. <laughs> but for someone like my mother-in-law, who's 80 years old, yeah, she can remember when she was 50 mm -hmm. and she can think back to that point. And therefore, projecting forward, she's thinking about, okay, so how will my grandkids pay for college? Right. She's thinking about those kinds of things. Whereas mm -hmm. my sister who's been married for a little over five years, for her, she's thinking, wow, what's the next six months look like in her planning? Right, right. I've got considerably more than five years of marriage, so I'm somewhere in between that generational and, <laughs> and that six-month horizon. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it. And something that you and I have talked about before is the number of scenarios that you have in your catalog of life. Right. And the a number of things that you can pull from that will give you comfort to lean into this creative idea because you've seen so many different things work out mm. as opposed to if you don't have a very extensive scenario catalog, 
you want evidence that this thing is going to work, especially if I've got to invest money. Right, right. That's a great way to kind of think about it relative to scenarios because it puts you in the mindset of, a, of the investor. If you have an investor who's had that sort of broader walk through the corporate world or through life and has seen success in a lot of different forms, creative imagination, synthetic imagination, those things are less disruptive to their model of what success could look like in the future because they have those views. Mm. And if you think about that, it really, that profile probably exists more in a VC type of, you know, resume mm. than the resume of someone who managed funds or done the finance thing and risen to a level where they're entrusted with billions and trillions of dollars. They probably haven't had that random walk where they ran a nonprofit for a little while or, you know, did a franchise, you know, ran a franchise for a little while or did these different things to broaden their understanding of what success could look like. Yeah, I think I think you are absolutely on something here. The word that keeps coming to my mind is this idea of developed courage. Mm. And if we think about our own corporate career, you know, I was in corporate America for over 30 years. Yeah. You know, you're very, something very similar. I don't know the actual number of, of years, but I, I'm thinking we're probably in the same club. Yeah, we're close. Yeah. 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 And if I think back to when I had my first job, I didn't really have enough courage to lean into anything very different than what my boss told me I was supposed to do. Mm. Whereas today... I've got a relatively limited staff that I work with in my entrepreneurial venture mm -hmm. and they're young, but if they come to me with an idea, I've got enough courage that there's nothing that they could get me into that I don't believe I can get out of. <laughs> right. 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 So yeah, let's play with this idea. Right. You know, who knows? There might, there's, there's a lot of upside to this idea. Let's play with it. Mm -hmm. And I have this courage, this confidence in myself. Not quite sure if it's warranted or not. <laughs> I'm sure it is. But there is no way they could screw up bad enough mm -hmm. that I can't fix it if I have to. Right. That's because of my lived experiences, and therefore I'm willing to play with more creative ideas. I don't need to see the white paper that shows that this thing is going to work. I don't need to hear about four companies that have done this exact same thing mm. or something similar to it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I hear you talk about that. All that comes to mind is freedom. Mm. I can imagine that not having that would be a more constrictive way of living and operating. I hear a lot of freedom in the way you operate and lead your team and move through the corporate world now. How did you cultivate that sort of sense of freedom? Yeah, I think it was from just living. It was from, you gave me this phrase, and so I'm going to use it <laughs> as much as I can, so hopefully I can gain ownership of it. <laughs> but it was about this catalog of scenarios, and it wasn't something that I built intentionally mm -hmm. because I wasn't smart enough to know that this was something that I needed, but it was just living and then going from this period of where I needed to have, anytime we would make a customer presentation, I would spend all week developing this presentation. Mm -hmm. And then I would spend like three days working on the backup to that presentation. Mm -hmm. And then I'd spend another day and a half working on the backup to the backup. 
Yeah. And you look up and I've spent more more time preparing for the question that will likely never ever come than the actual presentation itself. Mm-hmm. And the next phase that I went through was trusting myself to have the backup, trusting myself to be able to answer any question that someone might come up with based upon my experience. Mm-hmm. That was the second phase that I went through. Right. And then I intentionally went through this phase of having confidence in my ability to wing it. Mm. And by winging it, I don't mean absence of preparation, but just having confidence that my lived experiences would be enough to handle anything that might come up because I took this action. Mm, Right, right. To be able to manage the implications of the fallout. Manage the implications of the fallout that might be associated with a decision that I had prepared to make. Right. And so now that brings me to this phase I'm trying to live in now where I just have confidence in my ability to fix anything that might come out. I just don't believe that there could be anything that could happen that would be so devastating that I can't fix. Mm. And there's a bit of Superman syndrome still there. (laughs) But I'm willing to roll the dice to see if this creative idea might actually bring some positive upside that playing with tried and true ideas may still bring, but they're going to bring slower. Right. And the return is slower when you mm-hmm. use tried and true ideas. Mm. Well said. I can imagine a world where there are people out there with a version of your set of experiences, with a version of your career view that might not have necessarily taken the time to look back and draw that through line to build that confidence to be able to draw on it the way that you do. And I wonder if there's a way, or if if you might think about a way to help people who've got the 30 years of experience at big companies, have done amazing things, but haven't found a way to unlock that, to drive the confidence, to be able to do the amazing things that that you're doing. Uh, Yeah. Wow. Great question. Don't know that I have the exact succinct answer to that question, Mm -hmm. but uh, I would suggest that the way that they play fully is by trying to play more fully each Mm -hmm. time. And I don't think that we are ever going to see a time in corporate America, specifically here in the United States, where the company that you started working for at 25 or 25, you know, two or whatever the case, in my case, it was 21, Mm. is the company that you're going to retire from. Right. I think companies have stopped investing in gold watches. Right. (laughs) Right. That's just not available anymore. That's right. And so if you see yourself as on this journey, collecting experiences that will help you ultimately in who you are intended to become, I think that's the path uh, that might be worth evaluating. Mm Mm-hmm. A quick conversation that I had with some colleagues of mine, literally right before I switched over to have this conversation with you, Mm. I was talking with a couple of uh, executive coaches and we're peers, Mm. really brilliant guys and ladies. And we were talking about how the old paradigm of we're collecting lessons, we're trying to learn a lesson from life. I think that that's gone. And I think now we're in this space of trying to become. Because when you think back to when you were in the sixth grade, 
for me. That was 150 years ago. <laughs> you know, learning, you demonstrated your knowledge by being able to give them the answer that they were looking for. Mm. So they ask a question, how quickly can you give them the answer that they're looking for? And so there was a lot of memorization. You would memorize, when I get this question, here's the answer. Mm -hmm. I don't think knowledge is demonstrated that way anymore. I think knowledge is demonstrated by, do you have the resources to get the answer? Mm -hmm. Do you know where to go to find the answer? How many people can you collaborate to build a better answer? Right. And I think today's youth, that's what they're learning. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my daughter is a freshman in college right now, and what she's learning, I can't even pronounce. <laughs> I can't even pronounce the things that she's learning deeply. Right, right. And she will say, and she will tell you, why wonder we have Google? Right. Why should we wonder about something? We can, we've got Google. We've got resources to get the answer. I don't need to know these things the same way that you had to know them mm -hmm. in the sixth grade. And I reflect on that wisdom every day in the work that I do. Mm. It can come from anywhere, can't it? <laughs> <laughs> it really can. Yeah, that is wisdom indeed. Right. That term wonder, um, as we you know, talk about innovation and we talk about imagination, if you look back at the Mount Rushmore of innovators, Walt Disney's probably up there, you know. And imagination and wonder were kind of his stock and trade in terms of how he willed this thing that was in his head into being, whether it was a cartoon or Disneyland or Disney World. And in a world where knowledge has reached almost, you know, zero value because it's ubiquitous, what does that do to wonder? And, and what are the implications on innovation? Hmm. Well, you know, the only thing that I would possibly modify is... I don't know that knowledge has been devalued. Mm -hmm. I think data has been commoditized. Yes. Yeah. I think information has been commoditized. Mm -hmm. But knowledge, I think, still has value. Help me and my listeners with the leap from data and information to knowledge. For me, I'm bastardizing the definition and the distinction between knowledge and wisdom. Sure. Because I can know the answer but not know what to do with the answer. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's always value in knowing what to do with the answer. There's a uh, well-known story about Henry Ford, and supposedly he was brought to trial because someone put in the paper that he was an imbecile, that he was not very intelligent, <laughs> that he was just not very bright. And he sued that reporter for slander. And the reporter said, no, no, let's go ahead and go to court. I can prove that I wasn't slanderous. I was telling the truth. You're just, you're not very bright. Mm -hmm. And they put him on the stand and the lawyer asked him a bunch of questions. You know, how many people died in the Revolutionary War? And, you know, how many cubic centimeters did the arc have? Mm -hmm. And just all of these things. And so finally... <laughs> Henry Ford said, first of all, I am in the business of creating automobiles. How in the world do any of these questions that you've asked me, how will they help me create this thing that I've committed my life to do? Mm -hmm. And if they won't help me, why should I clutter my brain with these facts that don't contribute to this thing that I've committed my life to do? 
And then he went on to say, if I needed to answer any of those questions that you're posing to me, I've got a switchboard in my office with 27 buttons, each connected to a person who could call <laughs> at my command and give me the answer to any of these questions that you've asked. Right, right. Wow. That was 100 years ago. And that was 100 know? years ago. Well, I think you could take that same story, switch out the switchboard, place in technology, Google, mm. or any other search engine. Sure. And it's the exact same thing. That's what the youth is learning, mm -hmm. how to leverage information, how to leverage data, but to apply it to what you do with that data. Mm. And for me, that's knowledge. Got it. And that's really the purpose of innovation is to do something with it. Mm. Well said. That's super helpful. The data and the information fall short of knowledge until there's an application. Yes, I believe. Once there's an application for it, it moves from the realm of data information to knowledge because it's got a context. It's got a way of fitting into driving value or creation. Exactly. I mean, that, that was the last part of my original statement, you know, leveraging creative or synthetic imagination to enhance value. Yeah. I think the enhanced value part is incredibly, incredibly important, at least for me, mm -hmm. because if you were to ask me, what is innovation not? Yep. I would say anything that does not enhance value mm. is not innovation. If it doesn't enhance value, then it's just interesting. Mm. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. 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 I like that. There are a lot of ideas, creative ideas, mm -hmm. but they don't enhance value for anyone or they don't enhance value in the way that the consumer or the user perceives value. Mm -hmm. And therefore, to the person that's creating this idea, it's just interesting. Right, right, right. It's just cool. That's great. Fantastic. Right. Still worthwhile. Right. But let's not confuse that with innovation if it doesn't enhance value. Mm. I couldn't agree more. What do you think the implications are when people don't have value as part of their definition of innovation, particularly you know, Fortune 500 companies that you've worked for, do you see situations where that value piece, where interesting gets inadvertently subbed for innovation? And what are the implications of that? Yeah. Well, I think the short-term implications could be that you invest in things that don't lead anywhere, mm -hmm. that you distract your organization to work on things that don't advance your mission right. or your purpose. I think those are the short-term implications. I think the longer term implications, if, if you build a track record of pursuing things that are interesting but not innovative, then you're going to end up losing the brand definition that you have in the minds of your consumers. Mm -hmm. you're, you're going to lose your way. Mm -hmm. You're going to cease to exist or at least cease to be important in the mind of your consumers. Right. And that's the beginning of the death spiral, as I used to call it. Mm that you see organizations, failed organizations, move into this death spiral where they make a bunch of bad decisions. They spend more money against those bad decisions <laughs> because they don't want to give up on the three million that they've already spent. So let's spend another five million to save that bad decision. Right. Now they're running out of cash flow. 
And because they don't have cash, they're going out and pestering their customers in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Now their customers don't like them anymore. Right. In order to save that, they've got to spend more money. <laughs> and Ow. it's just, you never really recover. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. And the, the other side of that spiral I live, which is run out of money, go save us some money. Go make this product cheaper. But, but don't make it worse, mm-hmm. but make it cheaper and go back to our suppliers. And, you know, we need to, we need to save money there as well because we're bleeding cash, trying to figure out how to do exactly what you're describing. And it, the spiral just accelerates. And then once you get to that point, you start looking internally and what are some of the first divisions that you cut? Some of the first innovations that you cut have to do with what's going to happen 10 years from now. Because I can't focus on 10 years. I'm trying to figure out the next three weeks. Yep, that's right. But because you're not focused on the next 10 years, now you're not prepared for the future. So <sighs> death is inevitable. We're just, we're just prolonging it. You're just in this death spiral. Yeah. And I've seen so many companies go through that spiral. I mean, I teach this stuff. I talk about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And even in my retail business, as I reflect back on, I can see when I was in the spiral. Mm-hmm. It was just a matter of time. Yeah. The dynamics are bigger than any one of us. And that's the challenge with it is when everybody's in the spiral together, no one sees it. Mm. It's kind of like the rotation of the earth, right? You know, we're all here. So no one sees the earth spinning. But when you go to space, you see it turning. But everybody's in that spiral. It takes someone that's not in it to be able to say, hey, you know, this thing you're on, it's not taking you to a good place. And (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, there's always been this kind of duality of what role do coaches play? What role do consultants play in these situations? Because you get in these situations, money gets tight. And the first thing you do is cut back on external expenses, but that shuts off your view from space. And that I think is another form of accelerating that spiral you've, you've identified. I've never thought about it in those terms. I think that there is always value in having an objective point of view into what you're actually going through. And even if it's not just a point of view, I mean, you talked about coaching and very often my best coaching is when I am in a situation that I know nothing about and therefore I have nothing to offer except the space and the ability to help you navigate what you already know you need to do. Mm-hmm. Because if I have a point of view, it's going to be so tempting for me to share that point of view, <laughs> especially if you ask, right? If right, you ask, right. Galen, what do you think I should do? Right. Hey, my mom says I'm brilliant. Let me share with you what you <laughs> should do. And coaching, I found, has a lot to do with helping you navigate what you already know you need to do. And there are two things associated with that for me. Number one, we all know what it is that we need to do. I just absolutely believe that we all know. We know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we can't necessarily always find the words to articulate what we know. Especially here in the West, we believe that if we can't answer that question, if we can't articulate what it is that we know, then we must, we must really just be imagining it. We, we don't really mm-hmm. know it if we can't right. explain it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not true. That's not true at all. Mm -hmm. It's just that the part of the brain that controls knowing is not always the part of the brain that controls language. Uh. That's like asking someone, why do you love the person that you decided to marry? Explain that to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I can explain that to you. 
Right. But I still know it. It's still real. Right. And so part of my job as a coach is to help my clients find the language to articulate what they already know. Mm. So I give them the language. That's good stuff. And then once we find the language, if we do it right, usually my clients will have what I call a Moses moment mm -hmm. when they think, oh, there's no way I'm supposed to do that. Clearly, you must be talking <laughs> about my brother. You must be talking about somebody else. That's not, no, not me. Now I'm not supposed to be the one doing that. Mm. And so once they hit that phase, my job then shifts to giving them the courage, helping them find the courage to do what they already know that they were put on this planet to do. Mm. And coincidentally, that tends to be the lion's share of the work that I'm called to do is giving people the courage to do what they already know that they were put here to do. Mm. So I, I think that fits in with your question. It definitely does. It, it expands on the theme I was trying to, to explore. You took it to a whole new level. So thanks for sharing that. I view things on sort of black levels, you know, the individual level, the team level you know, department, organization, world. And when we work on these individual and team levels, we often call it coaching, right? Mm. And then somewhere between that level and the world, it becomes something else. Consulting, entrepreneurship, blah, 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 all these other things. But I think the thread of innovation runs through all of it in the same sort of vein. And what you're describing to me has a lot of elements. When you're talking about the way you coach, I'm hearing your definition of innovation, mm. you know, throughout the way you coach in terms of the, the creative and the synthetic imagination and mm. taking people through that process almost sounds like synthetic to start to get to the realization and then helping them trust their creative, right? So I just love that definition that you have kind of fits whatever level you're trying to drive enhanced value. Yeah, I think you're right. I've never thought about it that way, but that is really at the core of what I try to do, all with an eye on how do I enhance value for my client or for the organization. Mm -hmm. And the one term that we haven't defined yet is value. How do you define value? <laughs> yes. And I don't know that I've come up with a succinct definition of value. And the reason that I haven't is because value is defined by the end user. I can offer things that I suspect will add value. Oh. Uh, I can offer things that I hope will add value. I can offer things that would add value to me if I were on the other end. But if the user doesn't see that, if the user doesn't understand how they benefit from that, then it's not really adding value. Oh. There's potential value. So true. Yep. There's potential value. But if the end user, doesn't see the benefit, realize the benefit, and then give you credit for the benefit, then it is just interesting. It's almost the virtuous cycle that is the opposite of that spiral that you were talking about. You start creating value and they see that you help them create that and they give you credit for it. And it gives you the space to create more value. Exactly. Yeah, you know, that's good stuff. You and I have been in this consumer goods world for so long. We, we think about consumers and customers and all those things almost intuitively. Mm. I don't think people always connect that value equation. I mean, I think that's a universal value equation. I think we're fortunate to come from a place where that's the standard definition of value, but mm. bringing in the coaching 
bringing it into other environments, I think is a competitive advantage because I think it's easy for experts to fall in love with their definitions and to set their definition of value around that. I think you're right. I love the way you phrased that in experts are falling in love with their own definition. Mm -hmm. I think that that is absolutely seductive because we play in the space of thought leadership. Right. And, you know, we all want to believe that we're brilliant. We all want to believe that we're the next big thing and we should believe that. But let's not confuse that for actually creating innovation that will enhance value for the end user. Oh, well said. I know we're coming up on our time. I don't know where the time went. I say that at the end of all of our conversations. <laughs> but uh, I can't let you get away without asking if you have any advice for innovators. I think I go back to my original definition of what is innovation. I think understanding that there is a creative and a synthetic part of imagination. And I believe that imagination fuels innovation. Mm. It's the fuel for it, but there are two elements of it as long as we are focused on enhancing value. And something that you said earlier would be my advice. Learn from the synthetic. It's really, really important. That's the foundation. But then trust your creative. We all get hunches from time to time. And usually we say, huh, that's interesting. That's a coincidence. And we don't ever do anything with it. And the more that you can trust those hunches, the more that you can act on that inspiration, the more that you can put some diligence behind this crazy idea that you came up with, I think the more you can accelerate the growth and accelerate the value that we're all looking for. So that would be my advice to build up your synthetic, but trust your creative. And with you being a music guy, I can't resist this opportunity <laughs> to quote one of my favorite musicians in answering this question, Mr. Miles Davis. He said, in order to be a great musician, you got to learn everything you can and then forget everything that you've learned and just show up. Mm. And that would be my advice to innovators. Learn everything that you can and then forget everything that you've learned and just show up. You can't end on anything better than that. Thank you for sharing that. And, uh, you know, a Miles Davis quote is never out of place. <laughs> <laughs> I really can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with us and share your insights. There's uh, a thousand things we could talk about. We could talk about football, uh, but now is not the time to discuss that. I'm still recovering from the national championship game. So, Galen, I really appreciate your time and your friendship and your inadvertent mentorship, whether you know it or not. And we will put in the show notes all the different places people can, can gain some more of your insight and your mentorship, whether it's through your books, through your podcast, Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership, or you know, just taking in what you have to offer on LinkedIn, which is an amazing follow uh, there. So thank you very much for your time. And I'm looking forward to the next time. Absolutely, man. I'm looking forward as well. And as I promised at the beginning of this, I feel smarter <laughs> <laughs> because of this time I spent with you, man. You have absolutely upped my game and my, my mom will be impressed. Well said. I thank you for that. And until next time, we will keep it rolling. Take care. All right. Take care. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this week's show. You can drop us a line on Twitter at Outlast LLC, O-U-T-L-A-S-T-L-L-C, or follow us on LinkedIn where we're Outlast Consulting. Until next time, keep innovating. 
whatever that means. <laughs>